Hi, welcome to MD Notified, a pediatrics podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Christine Supchuk, and today we're going to be talking about Kawasaki disease, treatment and management. Joining us, we have Dr. Patricia Lantis, an experienced pediatric hospitalist who's going to help guide this discussion. Thank you, Dr. Lantis, for being here. Thank you. Thank you, Christine, for inviting me to talk about one of my very favorite subjects as a pediatric hospitalist. So let's start out our talk with a case. Um, Let's say we have a four-year-old female who presents with five days of fever, non-purulent conjunctivitis, and a rash. In the emergency department, she's tachycardic, she's tachypnic, and she has fever up to 39 Celsius. On exam, she has conjunctivitis with limbic sparing. Her hands and feet are puffy, and she has erythematous cracked lips and a really red tongue. She also has this kind of faint, blanching, erythematous rash on her chest. And when you go to feel her lymph nodes, she has sort of shoddy cervical lymphadenopathy bilaterally. Does this patient meet criteria for classic Kawasaki disease? I would say that she does um, because she's had five days of fever and she has, as you outlined above, four of the criteria that we use to make the diagnosis of Kawasaki. She has the conjunctivitis. She has the oral mucosal changes. She has um, a rash that's non-vesicular and she has the extremity changes of her hands and feet. Mm -hmm. I think it's interesting and kind of important to note here that she doesn't meet criteria for the lymph nodes um, because she has bilateral cervical lymphadenopathy that's kind of shoddy, um, and she doesn't have the usually unilateral node that's greater than or equal to 1.5 centimeters. So I think a lot of kids that we see with Kawasaki disease have a little bit of lymphadenopathy, um, but really to meet criteria for that particular category, you have to have over one and a half centimeters. Exactly. And it can be tricky to try to figure out that conjunctivitis also. One thing I've done over the years is to ask the parents to show me a picture of the child on their phone because invariably they've taken some pictures when their kid starts getting sick. And sometimes it's easier to appreciate the conjunctivitis in the photos than it can be uh, trying to look at a squirming, upset, angry, febrile, irritable child in the emergency department. Right. And the other thing that I think is um, good to know is that you part of this is going to come from your history. So if you have a history of a rash or a history of big unilateral neck swelling or something like that, I would still count that in exactly. my criteria. Exactly, because this disease evolves through time. And um, so definitely um, a good history is, is always very important. Mm-hmm. So when we're admitting this child who we suspect strongly has classic Kawasaki disease, what labs are we going to order for them? Well, you want to look at their complete blood count, in particular uh, with attention to the hemoglobin and the platelet count, um, because those are important, as we'll see uh, later on. You want to look at their comprehensive metabolic panel, paying attention to albumin, because it's a negative acute phase reactant, and perhaps the ALT are helpful. CRP is an inflammatory marker that we like to use, and um, additionally, we typically will ask the nurse to get a bag urine to look for um, white cells in the urine, which usually are monocytes. Oh, interesting. I didn't know that. So, yeah, and I think it is important to remember that this is uh, probably one of the few instances in pediatrics that we prefer a bagged urine. Exactly. Because we are looking for sterile pyuria, which is white blood cells and inflammatory cells that kind of come off of the urethra because the patient has urethritis. So we're not looking for anything, you know, pathological that's going on in the bladder like a UTI. It's really just inflammation in the urinary tract. Exactly, exactly. And there is some thought that those cells could come from higher up, up in the kidney, interestingly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So this is a child that definitely meets criteria for 
Kawasaki disease. And I would say based on their lab findings, that also supports a diagnosis of Kawasaki disease because we know Kawasaki is um, a disorder of inflammation and it's a vasculitis. So everything that you're looking for in the labs supports that this is a very inflamed child. They have a mild normocytic anemia. They have a leukocytosis. They may or may not have a thrombocytosis, hypoalbuminemia, elevated inflammatory markers, all of that supports this diagnosis. Right. So after we look at these labs, um, what else do we want to do to complete our workup? Well, one thing you want to do is make sure that there's not any other explanation for them. So it's important to keep that in the back of your mind because that is um, something we always want to be sure that we're not missing something else. Mm-hmm. Yep. And then also in terms of getting them to the floor and getting them kind of set up for um, next steps in management, I think uh, an echocardiogram should be obtained in all patients who have suspected Kawasaki disease. For sure. Um, and when we do this echocardiogram, we're looking for coronary artery changes. Exactly. Do you think that most of our kids have those when they come in? Um, not in my experience, no. Uh, the, the ones that do should get your attention, however, because mm-hmm. that is the main um, morbidity that you're looking to prevent by your early diagnosis and treatment of these children. Yeah. So let's talk about the treatment for Kawasaki disease. Let's say we got our kid to the floor. Um, what are we doing next to help her kind of calm down this inflammation? Well, if you've made the diagnosis, we're going to go ahead and order the intravenous immunoglobulin. And I believe that the uh, standard dose for that is two grams per kilogram, given over 10 to 12 hours. Mm-hmm. Yep. And we really want to try to get this IVIG into the child within 10 days of fever onset. Exactly. Because that's been shown to prevent coronary artery aneurysm. Exactly. Which is the main goal of mm-hmm. treating them. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So what else might we be wanting to give them? Uh, you asked. I, I believe that generally we used aspirin. And I think the aspirin portion of this picture has kind of changed over the years. Is that right? It has because um, a, a while prior to your matriculation in residency, <laughs> we used 80 to 100 milligrams per kilogram, and now we are more using moderate dose aspirin in the 30 to 50 milligrams per kilogram per day range. And that's mostly because um, the higher doses were effective but came with higher incidences of side effects. And when they studied it and they found that more moderate dosing did just as well in helping the fever and inflammatory symptoms without causing some of the side effect profiles. Mm -hmm. Um, The low-dose aspirin that you read about with Kawasaki is something that we reserve uh, once the fever has abated. And that's more something that is an anti-platelet, anti-clot dosing regimen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting that aspirin doesn't reduce the risk of coronary artery dilation or aneurysm formation. Right. Really, only IVIG does only that. Only IVIG does that, exactly. So after we give the IVIG, what next? Well, that's when we have to draw a line on the whiteboard in the room and explain to the parents that pretty much nothing is next. <laughs> because then comes the exciting part of waiting for 36 hours to see what is or isn't going to happen. Yeah. And during that time period, we're expecting that we may see some fever. Because mm-hmm. we just gave them IBIG, and they've also just been febrile for at least four to five days, typically. And so we're kind of waiting for the process to unfold for the IBIG to do its job. And during that time, we may you may see some fever, and that's okay. So I kind of zone that out in my timeline on the board and tell the parents, during this time, we expect some fever, and it's okay. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I think, in my experience, some providers will wait 24 hours post-IBIG, But really, when you look at the American Heart Association guidelines, 
they specifically say 36 hours. I think this is sort of um, provider dependent. And I think that if you see that your child is getting better, it's pretty obvious. The parent says, you know, they got the IVAG, 24 hours have passed, um, and they look amazing. It's pretty safe to say that they have responded. Do you think that's true? I think that's reasonable. I think it's important to remember the overall concept that everything is a spectrum and that there are children that we're going to see with um, more mild to moderate uh, versions of Kawasaki and we're going to see children with more moderate to severe versions of Kawasaki. So it's not unreasonable to think that at the 24-hour mark, children may start to look better and you might feel more comfortable um, following them up. But I would would say that that is something that is definitely physician-dependent and um, at your individual discretion based on your comfort and the parent's comfort. Yep. That's very true. Mm-hmm. So after the IVIG is completed, um, let's just say we're going by the American Heart Association guidelines and we're going to wait 36 hours. Um, if we give the IVIG on, like, let's say, a Monday morning, um, that means we would give the IVIG, let's say, from 8 a.m. to 8 p.m., and then the 36 hours would start at that 8 p.m. mark. Exactly. So that puts us all the way to Wednesday morning at 8 a.m. At that point, the 36-hour mark is up. And if the child still looks well into the afternoon or in, you know, after that 36-hour mark, no recurrence of fever, um, they're playful and active, at that point we would say the child has responded to IVIG. Yes, we would be happy. That would be an excellent day. Yeah. We would feel like it worked. Right, exactly. It's a great feeling. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, but in that 36-hour time frame, we are looking for some different things, not just fever, but other side effects for IVIG. Right. We are, and a couple of the ones that we tend to see would be aseptic meningitis, where the kid will get raging headaches, um, but this is not very fun. You can try to treat the pain with Tylenol. You can tell the parent um, that that's what it is. You can even tell them that it could happen when you're starting to talk about treatment, because sometimes letting parents know what to expect is often helpful, especially when some of the side effects do happen. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's definitely one of the things. Yeah, and I think in um, younger children who have these really bad headaches as a result of the aseptic meningitis, sometimes it can be hard to discern exactly what's going on. So you may just get called about irritability. For sure. That right? For sure. Um, and I know I think for us as physicians, while we're sitting tight and waiting for 36 hours, it's really hard not to want to order more labs and yes. kind of trend objectively how this child is doing, right? Right. Um, And so I think it's a good thing to point out that um, if you are going to trend labs um, and trend inflammatory markers, CRP is going to be the one that you would like to trend. Exactly, because that one goes up and comes down quickly and also is not impacted by what you just did. Yeah, which is your IVIG. Exactly. As opposed to your ESR. Right. And the SED rate is prolonged after giving IVIG, right? Mm -hmm. Because those IVIG molecules are clumping together your red cells and making a bigger red cell clump that falls a really long, long, long way and makes that set rate high. Yeah. Yes. So if you got an ESR on admission and then you gave the child IVIG and then you trended their inflammation by ordering another ESR, it will go up. Right. So don't do that to yourself. So don't do that. Don't do that. Trend a CRP if you are going to trend anything at all. Exactly. And I think that a CRP might be useful in trying to figure out what's going on when there's modest fever, maybe somewhat resolution of symptoms, but not really. Sometimes we've found that helpful. But again, there's always a downside to ordering a lab because it could be a result that you don't want. Yeah, exactly. The child could look perfect and the CRP could 
go up potentially. And then what are you going to do? Yeah. Right. Exactly. So, so definitely not necessary. Not necessary. Um, but case by case. Right. Exactly. Yes. Um, one thing that I thought was really interesting when I was researching for this episode was that about 10 to 20% of patients who receive IVIG for classic Kawasaki disease don't respond to the initial IVIG. Right. And that does seem rather high when you think about it. Um, I don't know that I've seen that. Me personally, what do you think? Um, what, what I've seen is that there can be some regional differences in um, how resistant children are to IVIG. I think the resistance to IVIG treatment um, after a first dose is much higher in um, Japan from what I've read. But so it, it may be that may be a general pooled number that is different in different regions of the country and of the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that, you know, having kids who are non-responders to IVIG presents a very kind of tricky situation because there's tricky. A, yes. not a whole lot of Data. good evidence. Yeah, the evidence is still um, waiting, waiting to be collected. And I believe there are definitely some trials that are going on There was this really interesting article published in Pediatrics in 2020. Um, They did a study on patients who had Kawasaki disease in North America, so more similar to our patient population. And they had about 115 kids, 30% were non-responders, and they developed this new criteria for Kawasaki disease um, non-responsiveness, I guess I will say. And um, there's four things that they're really looking at and each one of them is associated with a point value. So having platelets over 380 or thrombocytosis, I guess I would call that thrombocytosis. But it's, it's definitely getting there. Yeah. Um, that's one point. Having a potassium on admission that's less than or equal to four, that's two points. Having a body surface area that's greater than or equal to five, which is one point. And then having a creatinine that's greater than or equal to 0.4, that's two points. So if you have over four of those points, that puts you at higher risk for resistance. You know what? It's kind of fun to look at those criteria and think what they might each mean. So if your platelets are already high, it means that you're later on in your in your course of illness, perhaps. Mm-hmm. If your body surface area is high... You're likely to be a bigger and older child because we know that those children are at higher risk of aneurysms and of, and of resistance, perhaps. Yep. Same with your creatinine. The bigger you are, the higher it is. Yeah, exactly. So... Two of those at least have to do with, in part, your size and maybe age. Yes, right. Um, So we'll have to kind of see how those how those criteria perform, if and when they are adopted, you know, clinically. Right. Um, And I think that is sort of in direct contrast to some historical criteria that we've been using, like the Kobayashi criteria, which is published in two thousand six. Those criteria are mostly from a Japanese patient population. So may or may not be totally applicable, I think, to our patient population. Right. So it's kind of interesting to see. I mean, we know that Kawasaki disease, or it's postulated, like many other inflammatory and autoimmune conditions, is a combination of both genetic and environmental factors. And so if the genetic factors in our population are not the same as in other populations where research is being done, you know, it's really difficult to say how much of that we can extrapolate to our patients. Exactly. I would definitely agree with that. So let's say we have a, our child, she's four, she comes to the floor, she gets her IVIG, we wait 36 hours, and then at, let's say like 40 hours or so, she has another fever, and then we're kind of stuck in this situation where we're deciding what to do. Right. 
This what is, do we do? This is this is the head scratching area of hospital medicine where you don't have a lot of evidence to guide you, and so you have to look um, to what other centers are doing. You have to look to your um, colleagues and what what they've been doing, and you have to learn by doing while we are collecting evidence. And I do believe that this is an area where research is ongoing at the time. So that's the good news. Mm-hmm. So options include? Um, you could give a second dose of IVIG. Exactly. And the reason behind that is that we're thinking that there's a linear dose-response relationship to putting out the fire, and that if we gave them the first dose and it maybe wasn't enough, then giving them a second dose perhaps might be enough to turn off the inflammation um, process. However, mm-hmm. you could also... You could also give steroids. Exactly. And usually that's done post-steroid. Mm-hmm. So three usually days. you'd give like three days post-steroids. Mm-hmm. We usually do 30 per kilo per day, 30 milligrams per kilo per day right. um, for three days. Gram, right? Yeah, maxing yeah. out at a gram. Mm-hmm. That's what we call post-dose steroids. And that's kind of a more non-specific way that we're trying to just tamp out any inflammation that's going on. Exactly. Um, but we know that over um, over previous research that IVIG has been the intervention that's been shown to prevent the aneurysms, not so much the steroids. Yeah. So so that is, is one possibility. And then there's some more exciting, more targeted therapies that have been looked at. Yeah. You about those? Yeah. So infliximab or Remicade, um, that's a new therapy that I think a lot of research is being done around um, it's a monoclonal antibody, and it blocks TNF-alpha. And so it's really more of a direct approach to block that systemic inflammation. Exactly. And I think they're using that in Japan uh, more commonly. Um, and then anakinra is also being looked at perhaps as a more targeted therapy that might be useful perhaps um, earlier in the course mm-hmm. of therapy if you have someone who you're concerned about being IVIG resistant. So these are exciting developments that are definitely areas of up-and-coming research. Yeah, yeah, I think definitely more to come uh, in terms of um, second-line management of Kawasaki disease. For sure. So, but let's say, let's back up and say that our child isn't a non-responder. Let's say everything went beautifully. Things went well. That's <laughs> yeah. the best day. Isn't that the best, the best day? day? In exactly. hospital medicine when things are going well? Mm-hmm. I love those days. <laughs> those are great. Let's say our patient is looking amazing. She's playful. She got her IVIG. 36 hours have passed, and... Um, she looks like a peach. And the parents are dying to get out of here. And the parents are, yeah. But they're we've got always, some stuff to tell them. We've they've waited 36 hours, they and have. now they're ready to they're, bust they're out of, of here. Yeah. So when we're getting these kids out the door, we are sending them home with a prescription for low-dose aspirin, 3 to 5 milligrams per kilo per day. Um, and they get this for about 4 to 6 weeks-ish, if no cardiac involvement. And really that duration is defined by the cardiologist. Exactly. That's something we are relying on our cardiology fellows at this point. Uh, We are passing the baton to them, so good communication is important because they're really going to be the ones that are going to continue to follow that child, see what happens with those coronary arteries, and decide uh, when the child's ready to stop their aspirin therapy, which I'd like to say that dosing normally turns out to be between half to one of a 81 milligram baby aspirin tablet for anticoagulant purposes. Yes. And I think parents like to know that there's an end in sight because I don't think anybody wants to give their kid medicine if they don't. No one wants to have a child who chronically depends on any kind of medicine. Right. Um, So it is nice to tell them, you know, we're going to give you this. It's probably on a temporary basis. Right. Um, And we're going to send you to cardiology follow-up in one to two weeks for a repeat echo. 
um, they'll take another look at those coronary arteries and the cardiologist will take it from there. Exactly. And then being on aspirin, especially during influenza season, we might want to bring up another thing with the family. Yeah, we definitely want to talk about getting an influenza vaccine. And then there's another vaccine Mm -hmm. caveat, isn't there? Yes, there is. So as we kind of talked about, our patient in our clinical example is a Mm four-year-old. And so one of the vaccines that you get at your four-year visit is your MMR, um, which is a live vaccine. So we would want to go back and see, has our patient had her four-year vaccines? If not, um, we want to tell the family that you should not get live vaccines for 11 months post-IVIG therapy, mm-hmm. and it's not that it's going to hurt the child, right? No, no, because if you're in the middle of a measles epidemic, for instance, a local outbreak, you could actually give that vaccine, yeah. right? But we're just concerned that the child might not mount a good immune response to it. Right. We yes. gave them immunoglobulin. Those immunoglobulins will stick around in their bloodstream for 10, 11 months after treatment. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if you give a vaccine which is designed to mount an immune response, that may not totally work very well um, right. in a child who's had IVIG. Exactly. So, so you could give it if there was an acute need or if there was international travel to an endemic area, but you would want to repeat that again. At when the they 11, got back. Yeah, at the 11-month mark. Yes. For sure, so that you made sure that they had a good response. And that's sort of similar to why we delay these live vaccines until uh, babies have cleared maternal antibody levels, and that's why we give them around the age of one also. Right. Very interesting. It is interesting. It is. Um, so we, of course, want to have our child follow up with cardiology, also want them to follow up with the pediatrician. For be- sure. Because they're the ones who are going to do this long-term management. Exactly. Yes. And definitely because there's there's definitely some thought that perhaps these kids should have cardiology eyes on them, perhaps into adulthood. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly, I know some centers are, are following them on a more consistent yearly basis. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's something that, you know, Dr. Schnitzer, honestly, let's just talk about him for a minute founding hospitalist here at Children's, mm-hmm. and um, he taught me everything I know about Kawasaki that I've then tried to teach you and all mm-hmm. your other residents that we all try to teach each other, and, uh, you know, he was the one that started telling parents quite a while back that, you know, you probably should have a cardiologist lay eyes on your child every few years just to be sure that things are going well, all yeah. the way into adulthood. All the way into adulthood. Yeah. So that's probably a good idea. It is a good idea. And yeah. I think as pediatricians, as we go out into the community, it's a good thing to keep in mind. When you have patients who come into your office who have a history of Kawasaki disease, you kind of want to have that in the back of your mind as as to, you know, when you're doing your uh, anticipatory guidance, um, school sports, physicals, anything as, as they walk through the going door. Going off to college, maybe. Going off to college, yeah. yeah. Things to know. Um, it never hurts to have cardiology eyes on them. So I think we have hit most of the main points on our Kawasaki disease treatment and management. Um, as always, I will have this quick notes outline of the episode that we've gone through today up on the mdnotified.com website. Um, Dr. Lantis, thank you so much for being here. This is really fun. I enjoyed it. Thank you so much for having me. Again, this is MD Notified, and we will see you next week. Thanks for listening to MD Notified, a pediatric podcast. References to the information sourced in this episode can be found in the Quick Notes outline, which is available on mdnotified.com. The contributors to MD Notified have no financial disclosures or conflicts of interest. 
The views, information, or opinions expressed are solely those of the individuals in today's episode and do not represent any other organizations or its employees. The primary purpose of this podcast is to inform and educate. This podcast does not constitute medical or professional advice or services. If you are a member of the general public and have questions, please make an appointment with your local board-certified pediatrician. Pediatrician.